morning. My name is Shelley Vella, and this is my daughter Sophia, and we'll be reading Revelations chapter 1 this morning. Uh, you can find this on page 861 of the Church Bibles Provided. Please turn with me now as we read Revelations chapter 1, starting from verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like the trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches.
Well, good morning. <coughs> My name is James. <coughs> if you haven't had a chance to meet me, particularly welcome if you're online uh, or if you're a guest here with us this morning. You might be travelling or you might be one of our faithful who's out there on the road somewhere tuning in. We come to the book of Revelation. I can't think of another part of scripture that draws more fascination or fear, more uh, confusion at times or competing convictions than this one. It's said that Revelation is the book that people most want to hear preached, but the one that preachers least want to open. I want to say on behalf of the preaching team here that we are so keen for this series. We are hungry to dig in. But we know the tension and we know the challenge before us, not just as preachers but as growth group leaders, to do this faithfully and to do it well. The tension comes from the way in which this letter is written. And the challenge comes from its particular content, doesn't it? In terms of style, this is called apocalyptic literature. The term apocalyptic, it comes from the very first word of the Greek translation of this letter. We translate it as the revelation of John. Apocalyptic as a, as a form of literature, it's not a neat category. And John's not the first to use it. If you, if you know your Old Testament, it's there in Ezekiel, in Joel, in Zechariah, in Isaiah, in Daniel. It's notable for its dramatic imagery of creatures, uh, often its use of numbers, and its sort of wholesale visions of darkness and glory and beauty. For this reason, many, many get to a book like Revelation, read a little bit of it and go, no, just close these pages, this is not for me. This is, this is for someone else. We approached it a little bit like I approached uh, France and Italy when I was travelling in 1993 and 1994. I had no Italian and I'd never paid attention in French classes. So I just assumed I'm not going to understand very much here at all. I'm just going to have to fudge my way through and do the best I can. I fear that many open revelation like that don't do that. This is written for you. This is written for me. We need to approach it as I did when I went to Glasgow on that same trip. I knew that these people were speaking English, but I, I couldn't quite get much of what they said initially because the accent was so full on, so strange, and often came at high speed. I had to humbly ask them to repeat what they were saying many times, but it was fun to be in Glasgow. So just assume we're going to be visiting Glasgow until Easter, all right? <laughs> This is English, it is for us, we're just going to have to lean in and listen carefully. We're going to have to come back through stuff as we go. So why write in this way? Why write with such a heavy biblical apocalyptic Scots accent? One theory is that this is a book that's coded in order to hide it from the Roman persecutors of the day. Now, I think there may be some element in that, but I'm not, I'm not totally convinced of that. I think any intelligent, literate Roman is going to figure out who the great prostitute is sooner or later. I don't think that's the point of apocalyptic in that sense. Apocalyptic is more about not hiding but opening attentive eyes and ears to all who hear it, to the larger cosmic reality of who God is. 
Apocalyptic writing is designed to detonate in our imaginations. It should arrest. It should challenge us. It's supposed to force a new perspective on life. One that has the living God at the centre, not us, not Rome or any other passing cultural force or artefact. Apocalyptic language is designed to get in underneath our defences, to really, really challenge how we see the world. It's intended to capture how the eternal God intersects with history as it unfolds. How that which is forever works in time, in place. Whether that's the first century or whether it's the 21st century, here and now, it shows us how the risen, ascended Jesus, that Alpha and Omega, that beginning and end, can, with the same right hand that holds stars, reach down and touch the shoulder of a shattered man and say, don't be afraid. See, in the end, the point of apocalyptic literature is its language to bring us to the vast scale and truth of who Jesus is, our epic and intimate God who works in time and place. So if in this series you are confronted, you're unsettled, you're knocked off balance, that's the point. If you come out of today a bit overwhelmed by the vision of Christ, that's the point. We're supposed to be like John. Wow doesn't really capture it. Don't turn off or close the page when it gets hard. It's not here to hide stuff from us, but to reveal the larger things for those who listen and take it to heart. And that gives rise to the second tension here. What is Revelation talking about in terms of the past, the present, and especially the future? It's clear in this first chapter that it's an inspired letter written by the Apostle John, whilst, as we heard, was it chilling out? In prison on Patmos, imprisoned for Christ on an island. There it is, off the coast, in the Aegean Sea. It's written to seven churches, all in that Asia region, modern-day Turkey, but then they were deep inside the Roman Empire. One of my teachers, Paul Barnett, described these little churches as tiny boats bobbing around in the seas next to the supertanker of Rome. The Christians met in homes and hired halls. They were surrounded by huge temple complexes of the pagan cults and statues of the emperors and gods. When the troubles within the churches were coupled with all of the problems and the persecution from outside, it would have been all too easy to think that they, the gospel and God himself, were on the back foot. Remember, this is in the 90s of that first century. Jesus has not come back. It would be very easy to think we're on the back foot here and so is God before the power juggernaut of the empire. But Revelation, like the rest of scripture, is written to say, look again. Brothers and sisters, see differently. Understand reality from God's perspective. Richard Borkham, a great scholar of apocalyptic writing, says this letter is intended to purge the Christian imagination and to give a vision of God's power and splendour that outstrips anything that we might think is powerful or glorious. So it's a letter to a particular time and place, but it clearly points forward, doesn't it? 
And this is where Christians down through the ages have gotten so often easily knotted up, fearful and sometimes obsessed. Because the letter does lift up from that immediate situation of these churches and it does deal in last things. And because of that, over the last 2,000 years, many have jumped too quickly to the conclusion that, well, our age, we're the last age. This is it. And have read the events of their day into these pages. So, for instance, the fall of Rome, the rise of Islam, the Black Plague, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, World War I, World War II, the recreation of Israel, the end of the Cold War, the millennium, the European Union, the use of credit cards, the rise of the internet, all of these things have been seen as absolutely, finally, here is the sign, the end is here. And yet it has not come yet, has it? Friends, we must step carefully here. To think that God has given us a secret formula for a very select few to know and to grasp is a vain and dangerous game. It dishonours God, it distracts the faithful and it undercuts the gospel witness. Very important. Our task as we head into this series is not to figure out where COVID or Vladimir Putin or the Ukraine war fits into Revelation. But to understand this book, it's not saying essentially anything new. It sits at the end of the Bible because it draws so deeply from the Old Testament and all the new that had been laid down thus far to put before each of us an awesome vision of Jesus who is Lord of history. It is given to equip you and me to live out this week in preparation for the final return of Jesus. That's what it's for. The great battle is not somewhere up ahead. It has already happened and it's been won. It was fought on the cross and in that empty tomb. The Lord we encounter here in chapter 1 is the conqueror right now in these verses. There's nothing lacking in this Christ. And in light of that, like John on Patmos and the Christians he's writing to, we're to live in suffering, in hope, in patient endurance as we await the return of Christ. So as that, let's go in. Let's go into chapter 1. Prologue and greeting. That little prologue or introduction in 1 to 3, it reveals straight up, doesn't it, that what we're hearing and will hear has come directly from Jesus Christ. And John serves, just as he did in writing the gospel and earlier letters, by writing what he sees and hears. And it comes with an immediate note of urgency and a promise. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. One of the major themes of Revelation is that Jesus is Lord of history. We're going to see it up there in chapters 4 and 5. He is the master of time. And so when this one says the time is near, the days are short, that's given in order to keep his faithful people awake and alert and watchful. I hope we're not sleepy as we head into this new year, but quite the opposite. 
When we're alert and watchful, therein lies the blessing that is promised here. That when we read aloud and listen carefully to these words, we take them to heart. We let them sink in deep. Then we are blessed in our extended vision of Jesus and our grasp of who he is, but also our grasp of who we are. I hope we come out of today and each of this series so crystal clear on who we are in Christ. We grow in courage in the thick of trials and are assured of the final judgment to come. All of which we can glean from the next four verses alone. Now we don't know why this letter was written only to these seven churches. All of them were found on that great sort of circular or ring road through the empire. But we know that the number seven represents completeness in scripture. And we'll encounter it many times in this book. Given the wealth we've already got from all the other letters to all the other churches, these seven must be sufficient for what God wishes to reveal at this time. They certainly sat at the heart of the conflict between this world's empire and God's kingdom, which might make them suitable for this particular letter. Verse 9 reveals that John knew each of these communities as a brother and a sufferer, so they're familiar to him. Grace and peace is extended from God the Father and Jesus Christ. That former is named in verse 4 as him who is, who was and is to come. We're dealing here with the eternal nature of God, which will be stated of Christ as well. And it's such an important note to hit right at the start of this letter. These Christians, like us, are creatures of time and place. Now, we can know, can't we? We can know something of the past, but we really only can live in the present. We simply can't accelerate into tomorrow or next year. That's the reality in which we live. Because of that, we can very easily grow fearful of the future, can't we? And this verse tells us that God who is speaking through John is the same who dealt with Abraham and Moses and David and Paul. He knows the future and can speak with authority. He is present now with us and is Lord of all that is unfolding, even as we experience it. He knows that future, and that future laid out in the chapters ahead, you know what? It's all founded on what he has already done in Christ. Named here is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And as we heard in John's Gospel last year, Jesus spoken the word of God, hasn't he, into the very teeth of his enemies. He is a faithful witness. We know that he died and rose again and named here as the firstborn from the dead. That phrase says there's more, first, more, more people coming from the dead, aren't there? There's more to come. And having ascended to the Father, he has sat down in full authority. So be it Rome or the US or China, whatever sort of authority that we might think of, this tells us there is a greater sovereignty, there is a truer, deeper royalty in play, and that is the Lord Jesus. As will happen often in this book, we're only four verses in, and the danger in some ways is that Jesus is so large, he is so epic, 
He is so above all that we can think, how, I'm not quite sure how I actually relate to this one. If that's you as it is me, as I've sat in this, then hear what verse 5 says and treasure this verse as we go into the epic scale of Revelation. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. How many people could you say are loved by our Prime Minister, loved by the US President, uh, by any world leader? Only a handful, surely. And yet this verse tells us that the true ultimate ruler loves us personally and together, through and through. You are loved by Jesus. Do you know that? We are. Don't doubt it. Loved so deeply that he has freed us from our sins. That deep-grained rebellion against him, that is broken on the cross and it is paid for by his blood. Whatever work he has further to do in us, whatever battles are pointed to up ahead in this book, the greatest battle, the most costly battle, the bloodiest thing was that battle with sin, your sin, my sin and death itself and it has been fought and it has been won on the cross and in that empty tomb. We gather today as free men and women, not slaves. We go into this series, into this year, as men and women who are now equipped by God to say no to sin, to repent quickly, deliberately when we do sin, and to step away from temptation. Are we exercising that freedom as we head into this day? The fruit of that battle. For it is a victory, it is a freedom that comes with immense honour and responsibility. As those freed by his blood, ours is a freedom true to his promises laid down at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, again in Isaiah 61, this promise has been brewing all this time that he has made us, his church, a kingdom, priests of the Lord, ministers of our God, each one of us, set aside to serve Jesus' Father as our Father. That's what we're doing here. That's who we are. Christians then or now might have felt rather forgotten, sidelined by the culture, irrelevant, hated. We're going to cop it this year, aren't we? with the Pride Festival piling in. Publicly despised, I suspect. But Christians in every age will have reasons to think and feel like that. But these verses say, when the living God looks on the earth, he treasures, he loves us. He sees his own kingdom quietly, deliberately, publicly in motion. Loved, freed, commissioned to serve. And all this we're told so that we might stay awake and be ready for the moment eternity breaks finally and fully into time.
Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. It's fair to say that the whole of Revelation is about getting ready for this moment, this hour. Living out all that Jesus has done in light of all that he will do. It's about being ready today for the day he returns because it could be in the next hour, it could be this afternoon. I realised even as I'm writing this talk, I may not get to give it. It's that ready to come. His first coming was small, but his second coming will be all-encompassing. It will be evident to every single person. The clouds echoing the vision of Daniel 7 and that reference to the crucifiers, the literal crucifiers, mourning, comes straight out of Zechariah 12.10. Are you ready for this hour? Am I? Are we As much as we might look forward to that return, it's clear it will be a fearful, terrible day for all who have opposed him. Those first century believers, and we need to know this because in the hard, sometimes brutal hours of imprisonment for Christ, we meet in an intact building. There'll be Christians in the world today who are looking at the smoking remains of their building. The days of loss... The grief of being strangers and foreigners here for Christ. In our homes, our workplaces, our schools and our unis. The pain of persecution and the mockery that comes because I say, I I belong to Jesus. And it just seems to go on and on, doesn't it? We can forget, actually, that we're loved by God. Set free by a Lord who is returning to judge in the thick of the long, hard days. Revelation says, don't forget. Do not forget. Look and keep looking for he who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Keep looking for the one whom John saw on the island of Patmos all those years ago. So part three, the vision of Christ. As John is commanded to write, he turns and encounters the man he ministered alongside, the Lord he crucified, who saw crucified and risen, the Christ that he was there when he ascended back in Acts 1, but now encounters him in his full, shattering, glorious form. The sort of experience that it it does call, doesn't it, for apocalyptic language, that meshing of eternal with a moment in time. It's true that each aspect here, it's got immense symbolic value, but this is not some sort of two-dimensional Sunday school picture, and it's not a Roman statue. The one John encounters here is someone. It is the living one. And John's language is just stretched to the maximum to relay the brilliance and the fullness of Jesus' immediate presence. He's described as one like a son of man, which is just how Daniel, all those centuries back, described the one he saw approaching the Ancient of Days. And now here he is, surrounded by and dressed by so much that speaks of the temple, not the one gone, but the one that is now. The lampstands, an echo 
of, uh, that, that represent the churches. They echo the temple lamps and that long robe, that sash that he's wearing. That's classic priestly garment. So here is the one who now lives and ministers in the very presence of his father, who is our high priest in that heavenly sanctuary revealed in Hebrews 9. The white hair speaks of dignity and wisdom. And as one writer described those eyes that are burning bright like fire, they are utterly alive with energy and light and penetrating insight. There is nothing and there is no one that escapes the gaze of this one. Not you and not me. Those early Christians lived among statues of emperors, often with the sculptured feet at eye level, in sort of weathered stone and dull bronze. They were used to looking at the feet of conquerors. A reminder of their power. But in true apocalyptic style, intended to recast the imagination, see what real power looks like. The feet of the living one, the true king, are like bronze glowing in a furnace at once solid, strong and alive, as if they've just come out of that furnace. Back in Ezekiel 43, the prophet says, God's voice was like the sound of rushing waters, the same one standing here before John. And it's the same voice, full of weight and power, rising up from deep wells and rushing like a huge river. And at his right hand of power, he holds seven stars, which represent the seven churches being written to here. A wonderful depiction of their safety and ours in the hands of our Lord. We know that the churches in any age can be tossed around, can be bullied, can be trampled, can be cornered by the world and deeply, deeply damaged by our own ungodliness inside the body. We know that, don't we? But this one has each church deep in his palm. And we'll hear it in the next two weeks. That gives him the right to say some very hard and direct things to his churches. Only because he loves and he cares for his church. This is his kingdom. His priests. He has the right to speak. He says hard things now to his church because they and we need to be ready for that day when he proclaims ultimate judgment. That's what's captured in the sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That's a violent image. That's supposed to grab our imagination. It's supposed to send us back on our heels. Are we ready for him to speak? He whose face is like the sun shining in all its brilliance. You do hear, don't you, from time to time, people saying, look, I'm not going to believe, mate, until I see God. And that, maybe that's you tuning in today or sitting here. I hear that and I'm thinking, are you sure? Really? Every witness from Scripture of those who encountered in person, in some way, the living God, it is a shattering thing. Ezekiel, Isaiah... Moses, Daniel, it's just overwhelming. It is dangerous to be in the holy God's immediate presence. And here John fell at his feet as though dead, as any of us would. 
What happens next, I think, is one of the most beautiful moments, not just in scripture, but in history, in time and place. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Here is our epic and intimate Lord. He is terrifying and he is tender. He is personal and profound. He understands John's smallness. He gets your vulnerability and mine. He deals gently with us even as he rules the kings of the earth. And here again, John's courage, our confidence in the face of this one and in all that is to come is founded on what he's already done. I am the first and the last, he says. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. It's hard to grasp, isn't it, how one so full of life was once dead. But that's the path he took in order for us to gather here this morning, this hour, freed from our sins by his blood, created to be a kingdom and priests, equipped to serve a Lord who is master of even death itself, people ready, I trust, to head deep into revelation together. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near.